Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 to start with, and then we'll kind of work our way on in the direction we're supposed to go. It says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God and from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, we've already seen Jesus open the first six seals a while back in our study. As you know, we're trying to work our way through chronologically. And we've already made our way to the midpoint of the tribulation where the Antichrist has stepped into the wing of the temple, declared himself to be God. He's gone after uh, Israel, chasing them out into the desert. Uh, the two witnesses have been killed and come back to life and gone to be with the Lord. And, and the false prophet has come on the scene and the the statue of the uh, beast has been made and the mark of the beast. And we've gotten, we're at the midpoint and working our way through. And I think in my understanding of the scriptures, I think the first six seals happen in the first half of the tribulation period. The seventh seal begins the second half. You say, well, Jim, how could one seal be the whole second half? Well, if you've never read Revelation, you're about to find out that when the seventh seal is opened, that doesn't mean we're done. Because in the opening of the seventh seal, as you're about to see, there's seven trumpets. And then blowing each seven of the trumpets, when the seventh trumpet is blown, then there's seven bowls of God's wrath. And so we're about to see things amp up quite a bit. But I thought it would be valuable for us to do a quick recap of the first six seals to kind of catch us back up with where we are and what we've already seen. So let's just kind of, and we're just going to do this without turning back. We're just going to kind of remember it. The first uh, seal, when Jesus opened the first seal, we saw the Antichrist arrive on a white horse pretending to be Jesus, if you will, and he gains power without warfare. The second seal, we saw the rider on the red horse, and he was given authority to remove peace from the earth. And we saw the third seal open, and the black horse arrived, and there was famine across the globe. Then the fourth seal was opened, and the pale horse arrived, and death happens on the earth because of famine, warfare, pestilence, and wild animals. The fifth seal was opened, and we saw multitudes of believers were killed, for their faith, and we see their souls under the altar. Remember, they cried out, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And they were told what? They were given white robes and told to what? Wait a little longer until the rest of those who are going to be killed during this time period uh, were to be killed. Turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 20, though, and let me show you something kind of cool. <clears throat> We've already seen that there are those who are come, become believers in the first half of the tribulation, and a lot of them are killed for their faith. At the same time, we saw the last time we were together that there's the, the mark of the beast that was now being forced on everyone on the earth, and those who didn't receive the mark were killed. Look at Revelation chapter 20 and look at verse 4. This is at the end of the tribulation after Jesus has come back, as in nine, chapter 19, he comes back to set up his kingdom on the earth. And John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Do you see how there's two different groups here that have come to life? Believers at the end of the tribulation period, those who had been beheaded because of their faith, and those who didn't receive the mark. 
they all come to life at the end of the tribulation period to rule and reign with Jesus on the earth for the thousand years. The rest don't come to life until the end of the thousand years are over, and those are all the wicked dead, and they're going to come back to life to stand before the great white throne judgment, which we'll get to when we get to chapter 20. But we've already seen, though, that in the fifth seal, there's many, many killed during the tribulation period. And the sixth seal was open, and we saw that there was a huge earthquake which rocks the whole earth. The sun turned black, and the moon became blood red. Uh, the stars fell from the sky. The sky receded like a scroll, and the mountains and the islands are all moved from their places. And the people cry to the mountains for the mountains to fall on them in order to hide them from the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Now, that's important in this. It'll become more clear next week when we get a little further on, because at the beginning of the tribulation period, or in the first half, when God does these things in the six seals, the people realize this is the judgment of God, and they're calling to be protected from the judgment of God. <clears throat> Later on, we're not going to get there tonight. When we come back next week, you're going to see that at the end of some of these, the seventh seal, or in the midst of the seventh seal, when these trumpets are being blown, the people don't even repent. <clears throat> And we're going to deal with that next week, and that's a very heavy thing to look at, which we're going to deal with next week. But now, with that all in mind, now we see Jesus open the seventh seal. And when he opens the seventh seal, what happens? Silence in heaven for a half an hour. Now, let me just stop real quick and deal with a couple of things. One is, we've all been taught over the years that in heaven there's no time. Have you ever heard that? It's a land without time. But again... We've got to let the scripture be what builds our theology, not what people say or what songs say. Actually, the Bible says that in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be trees that produce their fruit every month. It has to be time if we're measuring months. We know that day and night, even though there's no darkness, there's day and night in, in heaven. So there must be a measurement of time. Maybe it's not how we measure it now with a 24-hour time period, but there's a measurement of time. The reason we got into this whole uh, measurement, uh, there's no time in heaven, is because of a bad translation of a word in the King James translation. And you'll see that later on when we get to chapter 10, there's an angel that raises his hand and says, the actual translation is, there'll be no more delay. But in the King James, it says, there'll be no more time. And because of that one place where it says there'll be no more time, when it should have said delay, we built this whole theology on how there's no time in heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So John senses that there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. Now, this is also important because of something else we've already seen. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> when John is taken up to heaven to see what's going to take place after the church age, he sees the throne of God. And as you're about to see, he sees angels and the 24 elders and myriads of angels worshiping God audibly day and night. They never stop worshiping him. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on the, each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. 
The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the fourth living creature, each, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around within and within, and look closely. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And if you keep reading, you'll see that what the scripture says is that whenever they do that, then the 24 elders fall down and everybody else. So we have already seen from John that in heaven, there is a continual worship of God. The incense that's on the altar continually coming up before him. We saw in the Old Testament that the law of God, when they built the tabernacle to parallel the throne room of God, that they were to have the altar of incense and the priests were to continually make sure that the incense was burning before God because there's a continual flow of worship to God all the time. But now when Jesus opens the seventh seal, there is silence. All of a sudden, all of that worship stops. And there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, years ago when I was pastor at uh, the last church I was at, there was a lady in that church named Betty. And she loved to talk. But my nickname for her was the Mouth of the South. I mean, it's just, you ever one of those people who just loved to talk? This was Betty. And I used to always joke with her that this was my proof text that she wasn't going to heaven. Because if Betty was ever in heaven, there's no way there could be silence in heaven for a half an hour. But I want to do something tonight. I want to do something tonight. Let's just be silent. and I'll, I'll bring it to a close. Let's just let real silence go on in this room. You start to get a little uncomfortable, don't you? I'm one of these people that I sleep better if I hear noise in the background. You put me in my chair with the TV on. I don't even, NASCAR is excellent because when you fall asleep, you wake up and they're still going in circles. <laughs> but if my kids come in and change the channel, I wake up. But if it just, we, we love to have the noise. We love to have things going on. Whenever they have a moment of silence, there's an awkwardness to it sometimes. And this should give us a picture of how serious what's about to happen is. That all of a sudden, when Jesus opens the seventh seal, it's almost like everybody in heaven knows what's about to happen. They're not like, hey, what, what, what are you doing now? They know. And when they know, silence. For like a half an hour. I'm not sure we could do it. I think it would be really hard for us to do a silence just for a half an hour. Seven angels. We need to take a look real closely now at what happens as well. There's seven angels who stand before God are given seven trumpets. And they're each going to blow their trumpets in just a bit. But before they blow their trumpets, another angel comes to the altar before God with a golden censer. He's given much incense to offer on the altar along with the prayers of the saints already in the altar. Go back to Revelation 5. Let me remind you of something we've already seen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 through 14. Eight. Yep, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. <clears throat> it says, And when he, meaning Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. We see that at this altar of incense that's continually burning before God is mixed with the prayers of the saints. And I want to, before we really get into the trumpets being blown here, I want to encourage you down a certain direction. What is the most important thing to God? What is the most important thing to God? His glory. His glory is the most important thing to God. And you'll even see that he tells the nation of Israel, I'm doing this for you, not because of you, but because of my glory. Because I made a promise and because it will make me look bad if I don't keep it. That's why when he wanted to wipe them all out in the wilderness, Moses said, this won't look good for you. And God said, you know me well. God is passionate about his glory. And what happens sometimes is I think we lose sight of the fact that what God requires of us is that we know him. Not that we do things for him or are used of him or accomplish great things for God. All the way back in the Old Testament, you'll see in two or three places, God says, well, the question's asked in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, what does God require? To do justice, to love mercy, and to what? To walk humbly with your God. Folks, I want to challenge you. Are you learning what it means just to get to know him? Not, Lord, what's my assignment? Lord, not what can you do for me? But God, I want to just know you. Jesus says in John 17 in his prayer to the Father right before the cross, he said, I gave them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And so, folks, that's one of the things God's been really challenging me with at this point in my walk with him. And he's wanting me to challenge you all as well. Don't get focused on anything else except just knowing him and walking with him. And really, that happens through a continual lifestyle of what? Prayer. See, the Bible says to pray without ceasing. Well, how can I do that, Jim? I got a job. Well, you don't understand prayer if you think you have to stop your job to pray. Oh, is there value in finding that place that we call the prayer closet and getting alone with God at times? Yes, Jesus sometimes would get up early in the morning, but he didn't get up early every morning. Sometimes he would spend all night in prayer, but he didn't do that every night. There's a value in getting alone with God and spending time with him in that type of prayer. But if the Bible says that we're to pray without ceasing, the Bible is saying that we need to learn how to walk with him and communicate with him through our spirit continually. Folks, I hope you realize as I teach you the scriptures, that's what I'm doing. Oh, I've made some notes. I didn't write this much. Because I'm learning how to teach in the Spirit, being led of the Spirit. He'll show me some things, or he'll say, don't go there. I know you went there last night, but I want you to go here tonight, and these types of things. And we need to become people who don't focus so much on how much God can use us or what we can do for God, but that we would just know him. I promise you. If you begin to practice the presence of God and learn how to talk with him and let him learn to recognize when he leads in his speaking back to you, 
you will end up where you're supposed to end up. You will end up being used of God the way he wants to use you. And it no longer becomes, what do you want me to do? It just happens. Do you understand what I'm saying? Move away from achieving for God and just walking with God. Let me ask you a question. Was, when, you remember the story of Mary and Martha? We know Martha was trying to do for God and Mary sat at his feet. Let me ask you a question. What do we have recorded that Mary did? She just sat at his feet. That doesn't mean Mary didn't do anything. But the disciples, when he had something for them to do, he would say, hey, go into the city and I want you to go make preparation for the Lord's Supper or the Passover at the time. There'll be things he has you to do. You'll know it when it happens. So I'm going to challenge you again. As this continual worship of God happens right now, and the prayers of the saints go before him continually, are your prayers there too? Just learn to just talk to him, rest in him, and you'll end up where you're supposed to be. We've turned it into a, just give me my marching orders, and I want to be pleasing to you, and I want to do what you want me to do, and I want to be used by you. That sounds so good, and he just says, I want you to walk with me. Remember when he sent his disciples out two by two, and they came back, and they said, even the demons respond to us. This is cool what we're doing for you. And he says, no, just rejoice that your name's written in the book. I was sharing, uh, I preached a couple weeks ago at a church, and between the two morning services, I was talking with this one man about a friend of mine who God miraculously saved. And he, had, he has this ministry now that he actually talks with people online. He's a very, very famous person all over the globe. And if I mentioned his name, you'd know who he was. And I was just sharing how late in life this man got saved and how we've become friends. I'm actually having lunch with him on Sunday, him, Becky and I and he and his wife. And I was just bragging about the ministry this guy has now where because of his fame, he spends most of his time online communicating with people with chat rooms and sharing the gospel with them. And his first name is Jim. And, and it's not me. <laughs> I'm not that famous. <laughs> this guy's way more famous than I am. And, I was, and when I was done telling this man at this break between the services about how all God's doing through this guy, he looked at me and he said, do you know why God saved Jim? And I'm like, why? He goes, it wasn't so that he could be used in this awesome ministry. He saved Jim because he loves him. And he said, don't get more focused on what God can do through Jim and lose sight of the fact that God loves Jim. And I went running to my friend Jim after that and said, let me tell you what this guy said. And that's what God wanted me to challenge you with. Don't get sucked up into what you can be do. What's my ministry? How can I be used? He saved you not so that he could use you. He saved you because he loves you. Just walk with him. If there's anything he wants you to do, it'll get done. He'll show you when it's time, if it's time. Seven angels who stand before God are given their trumpets now. And we must remember that in all the devastation on the earth... God is just in doing so, and he's to be worshipped in all that he does, and he's perfect in all his ways. Go back to Revelation chapter 8, and look closely at what happens now. This is the worship of God. Jesus opens the seventh seal. There's silence in heaven for about a half an hour, the sense of ominous of what's to happen. 
The angel comes and offers this incense with the prayers of the saints to God in worship. And then the angel comes and does what? Takes the golden censer. Look at verse 5. Takes the golden censer and does what? Fills it with fire from the altar and throws it on the earth. In God's judgment of sin, he's just in doing so. And he's to be worshipped in doing so. We love to praise God for the times that he blesses. And he comes through with an answer to prayer. But many of us in our churches sing song, a song that goes along this line. Uh, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. And he's to be praised in both ways. I want you to understand as we're about to read what's going to go on with the blowing of the seven trumpets. And you're about to see there's some harsh stuff about to happen on the earth. God is just in doing so. He's right in doing so. I had a person come to me recently because you remember I've taught that I think the Bible teaches that people that are in heaven can see what's going on. And people say, well, well, if they can see what's going on, how can heaven be good? And on top of that, what if there's loved ones that they know aren't going to get there? Don't you think that would make them sad? I actually believe the Bible shows us that when we see him, we'll know him as we are known. We'll see things as he does. And as you're about to see, and I'm going to show you from Scripture, I believe that if we are in heaven and we see that loved ones aren't going to make it, we'll see that he's just in punishing them. Because everything he does is right. And the Bible is very clear that he has given everyone opportunity and multiple opportunities. And if they choose to reject it, as much as in the flesh we would grieve, and I hope you still do, and I hope you pray for your family and your loved ones that don't know the Lord, and that you pray for God to put people in their path to show them the good news, and that that by His grace they'll respond, please understand that if they do go to hell, God is right in doing so. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, look at verses 25 through 29. The Hebrew writer says, See see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Go back to chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. The Hebrew writer says here in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I need to take some time to clarify some things in here to help you understand what's going on here. We hopefully understand that the Bible is very, very clear that if you have been born again and God has given you his spirit, you are sealed, you are his, you are eternally secure. The question is not whether or not you prayed a prayer or were baptized. The question is, did God give you his spirit? If you have received his spirit, you have received the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. But Jim, here the Hebrew writer talks about those who have, uh, uh, well, let me read it to you. They've trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. Listen closely, as you've heard me say before. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of the whole world. At that moment, the Bible says God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The heart of God, he forgave through Christ, reconciled on his side of the ledger through the death of Christ. The sins of the world have been covered. They've already been paid for. That doesn't mean everybody goes to heaven. Because now that the sins have been paid for, God sends his spirit to draw the world to receive it by faith. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one comes to the Father unless what? The spirit draws them. Verse 45 says, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to me. And so we need to understand that in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told a story about this man who had been forgiven a great debt. I mean, it was a huge debt. And he was forgiven this debt. Now, you remember, though, after being forgiven, he didn't forgive his fellow servant. And the master gets wind of the fact that he didn't forgive the fellow servant. And he takes him and he throws him into prison until he's able to pay the last penny, which, you know, from the story is obvious. He never, ever will. So in other words, here's a man who was forgiven, who was thrown into hell. Well, that doesn't mean he was saved. You see, the Bible says that the real evidence of whether or not we have received God's forgiveness is whether or not we forgive our brother. Isn't that what the Bible says? So you can say you're a Christian. You can say you're born again. You can say you've been baptized. The evidence is whether or not you are able to forgive your brother. Because if you have received his forgiveness, you've got no problem spreading it on to somebody else. So it's possible for someone to be forgiven Trample under the foot the blood of the covenant which sanctified them. And what? How does it word here? Outrage the spirit of grace. Mine says insulted. Insulted the spirit of grace. Remember? We've already talked about this. Jesus said all sins are forgiven except one. What's the one sin not covered by the death of Jesus on the cross? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the only thing that's not covered is if the Spirit of God calls you and you say no. So understand that if someone does go to hell, even a family member, God is just in doing so. As we're about to see him open the seventh seal and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, and you're about to see the wrath of God poured out, you're also going to see his mercy at the same time because he could just do it all in one fell swoop, but he doesn't. He gives opportunity for people to respond. But in doing so, he's about to send some very, very harsh judgments on the earth. And when he does, everybody worships him and says, you're right in doing this. But when we down here wanting to be God say, well, how could God? How could a loving God... You ever heard those things? Folks, I pray that you hear the truth tonight from the Word of God. 
when he has that angel throw the fire from the altar onto the earth, he's right in doing so. Let me show you one more passage. Go to Revelation chapter 16. We'll get later to the bowls. This is in the bowls of of God's wrath. But in chapter 16, look at verses 3 through 7 and look closely at who's saying what they say. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing that died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl in the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, and they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So when the angel pours out his bowl on the sea, and at this point, you're going to see tonight that there's going to be a third of the sea which is destroyed. But at this point in the bowls, all of the oceans turn to blood. That's going to be pretty nasty on the earth. Let me just tell you right now. Just, just not in the smell of the blood, but just the dead animals that are washing up on shore. We wouldn't even be able to hold our breath. But the angel pours out his bowl on the oceans and it turns to blood. Another angel pours out his bowl on the fresh water and it's all turned to blood. And look again at verse uh, 4. Sorry, verse 5. Who says you're just in doing this? The angel, what one? The one in charge of the waters. The one whose responsibility has been the oceans and the rivers. Is now seeing everything he's been working on destroyed. And he doesn't say, hey, that was mine. He says, you're right in doing so. You're right in doing so. So folks, it's time we really grow up into understanding a biblical way of looking at what is to come. God's still giving us opportunity to share the good news. He's not slow in keeping his promise of some count slowness. He's not willing any to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. But there is a judgment that is coming. And we have to understand that when it does come, he's right in doing so. Back in Genesis 15, Abraham has been promised a child, but he hasn't received it yet. And he says to God, where's this kid you promised? It looks like since I'm not having any child, Eliezer of Damascus, my servant, is going to be my heir. And God comes and says, no, your servant's not going to be your heir, but a son coming from your own body. And then God makes him this promise. He says, know for certain that your descendants are going to go into slavery for 400 years. And then they're going to come out with great wealth. And I'm going to bring them into the land that I promised. But listen to what he says. But the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure yet. In other words, when that 400 years of slavery comes to its end, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you into that land. And what were the instructions to the nation of Israel when they went into the land? Kill everybody. Well, how could a loving God do? He'd given them at least 400 years that we know of. To repent. But when it was time, he decides, I'm going to use you nation of Israel as my judgment on them. Don't let any of them live. We don't like that. But we're not God. He is. Let me ask you a question. I know you know the answer. I want to have it move from here and here to here as I ask you this. Does God do anything wrong? Is there anything that God does that's not perfect? 
Is there anything that God does that is not at the exact right time? Then as we're about to see all that happens from the opening of the seal that causes everybody in heaven to go, whoa. He's right in doing so when he does. And it's coming. It is coming. And if he brings judgment on those between now and then, he's right in doing so. He's right in doing so. Jim, wouldn't you say that 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're new creations in Christ. You just made a very poignant remark about us not liking it. We don't want anybody to go to hell and go through that either. That's right. Where our hearts should be. Our hearts exactly. Should be. And the Bible actually says that God has no joy in the death of the wicked. We should have an attitude that says we don't want that to happen. But we should not ever cross that line into thinking that God is unfair. He's been way more than fair. We look at the end of verse, back to Revelation chapter 8, look at the end of verse 5. When the fire was thrown to the earth, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you remember back when we read in chapter 4? That was what was happening from around the throne continually, the holiness of God. And those are all warning signs. I like to play golf. Whenever you hear the rumbling of the thunder, what are you supposed to do? And it's not hold your club in the air. You're supposed to find shelter. When this happens, there's rumblings, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's earthquake. God's trying to get their attention, and there's warning signs. Go to Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many of the people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth and at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. By the way, real quickly, we've already seen, as I showed you Revelation 16, that during the bowls, there comes a point where all the ocean is destroyed. And there comes a point where all the fresh water is destroyed. How come in the blowing of these trumpets, a third of the oceans are destroyed and a third of the fresh waters? Why not all of it? I heard it. Mercy. Mercy. He's still giving an opportunity to respond. All the way through. The angel we see flying in midair saying, watch out for what's about to come. In other words, respond now. We're going to see at the very, very end that there's going to be an angel that flies in midair and preaches the gospel to the whole world all at once. God is continually offering, even to the last breath. That's why we love the story of the thief on the cross, isn't it? Because he was one of the ones, if you look at Matthew's account, they both were making fun of him. They both mocked him. One of them changed his mind at the last minute and said, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said, that's all I'm looking for. You'll be with me today in paradise. And that's who God is all the way to the end. So let's just real quickly look at these trumpets because we're not going to spend too, too much time on the trumpets because honestly, all I can tell you is here's what the scripture says. To figure it out, make your head hurt. 
How is it going to happen? Is it one-third of the oceans, meaning one whole section is just going to be blood red? Is it going to be, and it adds up to, a th- I don't know. But the Bible says that hail, fire, and blood are thrown on the earth, and a third of the earth is burned. A third of the trees are all burned, and all the green grass is burned. Then we see something like a flaming mountain is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turns to blood. And a third of the sea creatures die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. Now, it might be a meteorite. He just says they see something like a flaming mountain falling from the... It could be a meteorite that actually makes it into our atmosphere, but it hits the ocean, and a third of the oceans are destroyed, and all the living things in it. And by the way, have you ever seen dead fish? What do they do when they die? And make their way to the shore. That's not going to be a pleasant time. We see the third trumpet, a star falls from heaven and hits the fresh water like a blazing torch. And the star's name is Wormwood. And a third of the fresh water becomes bitter. And many people die because of the bitter water. I want you to go with me real quick. Put a bookmark in Revelation. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 9. I want you to see that God has turned waters bitter before to get a nation's attention. In Jeremiah 9, the nation is, is Israel. But I want you to see this is something he's done before to get people's attention. In Jeremiah chapter 9, look at verses 12 through 16. God says, Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food. Some of your translations don't say bitter food, though. What do they say? Wormwood. I will feed these people with wormwood and I'll give them poisonous water to drink and I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known and I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. This is God's judgment on Israel when he said, I'm going to at a certain time scatter them to all the nations, which had been, we already know it's happened. And we've already seen now, 1900 and something years later, he's brought them back into the land and he's fulfilling, uh, getting things ready to fulfill all the promises that he was going to do in Israel. But what did he do when he was getting their attention? He started to lay the land waste to get their attention. He was starting to affect everything that they knew was natural with the crops and the planting and the rain and all this stuff. And he also sent wormwood to them. Have them give them bitter water to drink. So what we see here at the second half of the tribulation period is God doing the same thing. This time not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. Why do you think God... Affects things on the earth, like the oceans and the rivers, the trees and the grass, to get man's attention. Go ahead. He gave it to get their attention. Very good. He's declared who he is, and it's been you're clearly seen through what's been made. There's more reason. Keep going. It's the source of life. Some of you may or may not know a man named Vance Havner, a wonderful old preacher. He talks about all our technology now. He says, but all God has to do is to stop the wind from blowing and we're about to die. Or he said there was a power outage in New York and everybody was waiting for the sun to come up. And to be honest with you, if there were a famine, it's going to affect the whole globe and the food supply and the chains and all. And as much as we think we don't need God, all he's got to do is just affect the rivers 
and the oceans, the trees, and the plants, we're done. We're done. We still need food. We still need water. He's getting their attention. He's getting their attention. The fourth trumpet affects the sun and the moon and the stars in, the, in some way that it causes the day to lose a third of its light and a third of the night as well. Now, remember, if the night is lit at all, it's only lit from the sun. Remember, it reflects off of the moon and gives us light. Somehow, some way, the heavenly bodies are definitely being shaken at this time. And all we know is, is that the sun loses a third of its light. Now, it could just simply be it becomes a third dimmer. It could be that the earth axis has been rocked in such a way that it doesn't give us as much sun as we used to. I don't know. Don't try to figure it out. Just know what the scripture says and that it's going to happen. And don't just take Revelation. Take Jesus' words himself. Go to Luke 21. I want you to see something here because I also want to teach you something else from Luke 21 at the same time. But look at how Jesus talked about these days that are coming. In Luke 21, starting in verses 25 through 28. Jesus is speaking and he says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken." Can we read about that in Hebrews as well? And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, we have for years tried to read this passage and have it apply to the church. You ever heard preachers talk about when you see these things, lift up your head, your redemption draws near. Jesus wasn't talking to the church, folks. If you've been following along, he's talking about what's going to be taking place during the tribulation period. Oh, yeah, we've had lots of earthquakes increasing and different things like that. And, yeah, there have been some tsunamis that make people freak out. But this isn't what he's talking about. What he's talking about is what's going to happen during the tribulation period and all the things that we've been seeing here. And remember, Jesus was sent to who? To the Jew. Then to the Gentile, but that's after his death. You remember when... He was on the earth. He said, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It's right at the time of his death that all of a sudden a group of Greeks want to see Jesus. And they come and tell Philip and Andrew and Philip gets Andrew and they say, Jesus, a group of Greeks want to see you. And all he says is it's time for me to die. Why? Because he recognized his father was moving his drawing from the nation of Israel to the Gentiles now. Before it was a Gentile here and a Gentile there. Now the, nation, the Gentiles as a whole are starting to want to respond. And so he sees his father moving to the Gentiles. He says, it's time for me to die. Then the Bible shows us that Paul said that God had given him this ministry as an ambassador to the Gentiles to proclaim some of these mysteries that hadn't been revealed in previous generations, but now are being revealed through his prophets that in saving the Gentiles, which the Bible said he was always going to do at some time, but they were made equal with Israel and joint heirs and the promises and the spirit being within us and all that stuff that he's going to do for them in the very last days are ours now to make them jealous. Jesus, though, wasn't speaking to the church. If you read Matthew 24 and try to read the church into it, it's going to mess you up. Because he's speaking when he starts in Matthew 24 describing the signs of his, of his return and, and, and what it's going to be like. He starts describing the first six seals. 
with the false prophets and the earthquakes and all these different things and wars and rumors of wars, everything we just read about in the first six seals. And then he says, and when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, run. Who was he talking to? Was he talking to the church? No, he's talking to the nation of Israel. And then he says something that should help us understand he's not talking to us. He says, pray that your flight doesn't happen on a Sabbath. He wouldn't write that to the church. We're not bound by any Sabbath laws. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 says that very, very clearly. He also says, pray that your flight doesn't happen in the wintertime. Well, folks, if, he, if he's speaking to the church, he just told the church to pray against each other. Because the church is all over the globe. And right now we got winter. And Australia's got summer. And when we have summer, Australia's got winter. So is he telling the church, pray that he'll come when it's winter for our brothers? He ain't talking to the church. Here's where we got into this mess. For the first almost 2,000 years of the church age, there was no Israel in the land. They had been scattered to all the nations like God said he would because of the rejection. But all along, the prophecy kept talking about, in the end, Israel, Israel, Israel. And so for the first 2,000 years of the church age, your Bible teachers and your preachers, I might have been one of them, would look at it and think, well, Israel must mean something else. Maybe, well, and you can take a couple of passages that Paul talks about in Romans, about how not all who are of Abraham are of Israel. And even their children of faith are a part of Abraham. And they built this doctrine about the fact that the church is now fulfilling the promises for Israel. And they started to believe an amillennial doctrine where there was no thousand year reign of Christ, where he doesn't literally come back to the earth, but there comes a time when we just go to be with him. And they try to make the rapture at the same time as the second coming, which that doesn't even work. And we started reading. How many of you ever heard the preacher talk about the parable of the sheep and goats and have him preach it to you about how you're to give someone a glass of water and visit them in prison? And if you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine, Folks, that passage clearly says in Matthew 25 that when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, He's going to set up His throne here and He's going to gather the nations. If you parallel that with, that with Joel chapter 3, you'll see the exact same thing. And He says He's going to judge them according to how they treated Israel. By the way, do we get into heaven because we gave someone a glass of water? You get into heaven because you visited somebody in prison? No, that passage was talking about the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on this earth and how he determines which of the humans that lived through the tribulation get to live in the millennial kingdom is according to how they treated Israel. The ones that didn't, the goats, go to judgment. The ones who did are given righteousness and they get to live in the kingdom. How many of you ever heard the preacher say, two men will be taken, sorry, two will be working in the field, one will be taken and one will be left and they talked that the rapture. You ever heard that? Again, whenever you look at the prophecies in the Gospels, make sure they're talking to the church. Most of them, when it's talking about the end days, aren't talking to the church. Listen closely to what Jesus said in that passage we love to talk about and try to make it the rapture. As it was in the days of Noah, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Let me ask you a question. In the days of Noah, who was taken, who was left? Were the, were the righteous taken or the righteous left? The righteous were left. Who was taken? The wicked. 
Actually, if you do a study of that Greek word, they will be taken. It actually means taken for judgment. I'm going to show you later on in our study, we're going to break all this stuff down in much more detail in, in time to come. I'm going to show you that actually the Bible teaches that there's going to be a harvest at the end. A harvest of the wicked and a harvest of the righteous. And so what you need to understand is when Jesus says, when you see all these things looked up, your redemption draws nigh, he's talking to Israel. When you see all these signs in the sun and the moon and all this stuff and the nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas, he's, if you understand Revelation and the Old Testament, and you put it all together, he's not talking to us. Now we're to be always ready because we don't know when the Lord's going to come and snatch his church away. But what did Jesus tell his disciples in John chapter 14? In my father's house are many mansions, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. Now that's the rapture. But when he comes in his second coming, he's coming back to this earth, and we're going to come with him, and he's going to set up his kingdom. So I just want to challenge you to understand that all this stuff we're reading about in Revelation, Jesus had been describing it in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, but don't try to read the church into it. All of a sudden, it makes so much more sense. Then John sees and hears an eagle flying overhead, crying with a loud voice, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth because of what will happen when the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are blown. Don't miss that. We've already seen a third of the oceans destroyed and the ships and everything in it. We've seen a third of the rivers, all third of the trees, all the green grass has been destroyed. And the angel says, you hadn't seen anything yet. Watch out. Well, those of you that are on the earth at this time, when the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are blown, all he could say was, whoa. Go to Revelation chapter 9, look at verses 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And they, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and, it will, not, and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, we won't have time tonight to finish these verses that I just read to you, but we're going to just pull out a couple of things quickly. We're going to dive into this in a lot more detail next week. Let me give you some homework. Between now and next week, read Joel chapter 2, the book of Joel chapter 2. Because if you understand Joel chapter 2, what we just read about and are about to read about in the rest of chapter 9 is going to make a whole lot more sense. But let me just say this much to you. What you see here is demons being released on the earth to torture humans on the earth at that time. For years, 
when I didn't really understand how to study scripture and I was taught like I was to just try to look for the symbolism, I tried to figure out, well, is this like a, an Apache helicopter because of the fire coming from its tail or the sting in its tail and all this kind of stuff? And then the more I looked at it, the more I let the scripture speak, I came to realize, where are these things coming from according to this passage? From the bottomless pit. So in order to really understand this, we need to know a little bit more about this bottomless pit. In other places also, as you're about to see, it's called the abyss. Uh, Go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 31. In Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into where? The abyss. You're about to see that the abyss, or this bottomless pit, is a place of holding for angels who are going to be judged for their wickedness. This is a place for the wicked angels. This is a place for humans called Hades. When they, are in, they die in rejection of God's salvation through Jesus Christ and are not covered by the blood of Christ, they go to a place called Hades, which is a place of fiery torment. And as you're going to see when we get to Revelation chapter 20, when they are brought back to life and stand before God at the great white throne of judgment, they're going to come out of Hades, be judged according to everything they've done, and also because their name's not in the book, and then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. You're going to see later on that at the end of the tribulation period, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they go straight to the lake of fire. You're going to see in just a second, I'm going to show you from Revelation chapter 20, that Satan is going to be bound in this bottomless pit, in this abyss for a thousand years, but then he's going to be released for a short period of time, and then from there, he goes to the lake of fire. This abyss is a place of holding, it's a place of torment, it's a place of, it's a prison for demons, for fallen angels. Go to Revelation chapter 20, let me just show you what I just referenced. And you could tell that the demons didn't want to go there too soon, did they? They said, don't send us to the abyss just yet. And he allowed them to go into the pigs. You know the rest of that story. In Revelation chapter 20, look at verses 1 through 3 and then verse 7. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Go to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his what? Prison. And he'll come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. We'll get to that later on. If you were to look later on at Revelation 11.7 or Revelation 17.8, you'll see again, this place is the pit or the abyss. It's a bottomless torture chamber. It's a prison for demons. 
in the time we have left, we're going to deal next time when we come together uh, as to who are the ones that are attacked by these demons. Because it says everybody that doesn't have the seal of God. And there's great debate, I'll tell you now, and if you want to start wrestling with it, you can. There's great debate over whether or not that means just the 144,000, which we know are sealed by God on their foreheads. Or whether or not that means the 144,000 and all believers, and that only the unbelievers are tormented. I'm going to deal with that next time, because honestly, there is no answer that I can give you just yet, because there's good arguments on both sides, and I'm going to lay them all out for you. I'll show you next week which way I lean, but we'll deal with that next time. In closing tonight, I want to do one thing. I want you to see closely, I think this passage here in Revelation 9 is where we get a lot of our false teaching about Satan ruling in hell. (coughs) Excuse me, a misunderstanding of the scriptures. Fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Look at verse um, 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it's Apollyon. So these demons come out of the pit, and they have as king over them this one called Apollyon or Abaddon. Abaddon in the Hebrew means destruction. Apollyon means destroyer. But how can you show me from this passage that even though their king, the king over the demons is whoever this person is, and it may be Satan himself, how can you show me from this passage, and the answer is there in the beginning of chapter 9, that Satan is not ruling in hell or in the abyss? There's a clue there. Anybody see it? It's locked up. And he's given the key. Do you see it? I want you to understand something. Way back in Revelation chapter 1, when John saw Jesus on the earth, Jesus said, I hold the keys to death and Hades. I control. And if this is Satan or just a mighty angel, we don't know. It might be Satan. Or it just might be a mighty powerful angel whose name is destruction or destroyer, whichever it is, this individual has to be given the keys to unlock the pit so that these demons can be released to torture mankind. So don't think for a second that Satan rules and reigns. His reaction is the same as the rest of the demons who say, I don't want to go there before it's time. Oh, they know they're going. They just don't want to go before it's time. As we close tonight, let me ask you a couple quick questions. How do you feel when you read all this? It's scary. We'll be gone. Thank the Lord. We do thank the Lord that we've been spared this. Hey, Jesus told the church in Philadelphia, and it's also us. He said, look, I'm about to spare you. They are a trial that's going to come on the whole world. But what else are the things you think? Yeah. It makes you want to tell people so they don't have that happen to them. Yes, sir. God is really in control of everything. Yes, he is. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, when he's preaching to the Areopagus on Mars Hills, make this statement. God has set a day for judgment. It's already been set. So that means every minute, every hour, every day that passes, we're that much closer. The day's already been set. It is coming. And as we hopefully get this in our hearts and we see what's going on on the globe, 
you can't help but realize we're getting very, very close. So I just want to challenge you to build your doctrine from Scripture. Don't build your doctrine of, well, I want a God that does this. No, no, no. Let God be God. He's holy. He's just. He's right. Thank him for his mercy. Here's my challenge to you. Go learn to walk with him. Don't work for him. Don't go to work for him. Learn to walk with him. I promise you, you'll end up everywhere you're supposed to be. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.